are back to finish up our Lizzie Borden episode, our fifth episode in our Halloween episode. We hope you enjoy it. We'll jump <laughs> right back in. This, this is our pageant pro- passion project. And, um, of course, Lizzie Borden is one of my favorite cases of all time because there's so much to talk about and so many unknowns. And I don't think we'll ever know the reality of what happened, but it sure is fun to discuss it. So before we dive in too deep, I want to get a couple quick little disclaimers out there. This is obviously the old case. It's about 130 years old at this point. But everything that we're talking about and all of the notes we share... Essentially, it's opinion. It's meant for entertainment. This is not meant as true fact or we're trying to uncover or reopen anything. This is really, as Sonia said, just kind of like a fun passion project for us. If you have young ones listening, this might not be the time to finish this podcast because we are going to get into a few heavy, maybe some gruesome details. Yep. A couple of other... All right, well, uh, Sonia, I think it's time we dive in. All righty. I really do believe that if Lizzie killed her mo- her stepmother and her father, she planned it. Oh, th- this you know, was this was obviously premeditated. This is this is murder one. This is not. Yeah. A- and even if it was somebody else. I think they still would have had to plan it to be able to work at the precision to make sure people weren't in the house at the same time to know what was going on. Doors locked, couldn't open the doors yet. Somebody gets in the house and kills them. Well, I think it's one way or the other. I think it's a quote unquote inside job, whether it's Lizzie, whether it's Bridget. And honestly, I I don't necessarily think that is Bridget, but I I think it was someone that had easy access or at least was able to provide information to people to get easy access. Yeah, agreed. I mean, this wasn't an, I don't think this was an angry bank customer who had just had enough and decided one morning to take it out on, to take out all of his anger on Abby and Andrew. No, not, not, not to risk unless there was some motive for that. Now it's, I guess possible that Lizzie could have paid someone to do it. Right. Um, and let them in and out. She certainly had the ability to do that. She did, and there's suggestions that she may have had a couple romantic relationships with some people that were forbidden, and so that she had access to people that were below her social class. They may have wanted to do things to impress her. Well, I think we, if, I mean, speaking of relationships, it was also sort of suggested that she may have had a relationship with Bridget. Yes, definitely. And it's actually been known that later in life, Lizzie had more than one lesbian relationship. So the idea that she had a relationship with Bridget isn't out of this world. No, not at all. And I know that a lot of people pick on Lizzie and say that she was unattractive. I think that I've seen more than one picture where she appears to be very attractive. Oh, I I wouldn't classify her as unattractive. Oh, classifier is stunning, but I didn't look at her and think, oh, you're so homely. Not at all. Yeah. Which again is back to, you know, why was she single? Why was Emma single? Were they keeping themselves away from people or were they kept away? Right. I mean, honestly, I feel like the pictures that I saw of Lizzie were so staged from that time period where you had to sit still for so long and it was a very well-to-do dresses that they were in. They couldn't smile. So it's not 
hard compared to the world that we live in today where everyone's smiling for every picture to think, oh, that's not an attractive person. It's it's completely different. It's totally out of context. Absolutely. I mean, and to be honest with you, I don't know if you know this or not, but a lot of times back in the day, people didn't smile because they didn't have any teeth or their teeth were really bad. A lot of people had wooden teeth. Uh-huh. And in addition to that, frequently people only had one photograph of them if they didn't have any money or couldn't afford it. And that photo would have been your death photo. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and actually, another reason why people didn't smile taking it back to the days of early photography, the way that you had to expose a picture, it had to be exposed for so long, you couldn't smile because then your mouth would move and it would distort the picture. Exactly. Yeah, I I have my own sort of fascination with, you know, pictures from back in the day because there were a lot, not to go down this road, um, and we can talk about it on another occasion, but there was this sort of collectible world for death photos. Oh, yeah. And what's really weird about it is sometimes in these death photos, the people actually look alive because they prop them up to make them look like they're yeah, still there. It happened a lot with a lot with kids and with babies. It did. And sometimes they're really good pictures. Well, yeah, except the people are dead. I know, but you wouldn't know that unless you were told that, which is crazy. Which is why they're collectible because then you're like, what? I know. So, okay, back uh, back to the case. We, we digress. Um, one of the things that I found, found really interesting about this is that no one appears to be concerned that the murderer is still on the loose. No. Which is really strange. Uh, because, again, I'm out of there. If someone's getting murdered, I'm going to go somewhere else. And even throughout the rest of the day and into the next couple of days, they stayed in the house. And their friends stayed in the house with them. They had a friend stay with them. They were offered to go somewhere else, but they decided, no, the girls wanted to stay home. And by the way, we didn't mention this. They did instant autopsies on the kitchen table, a dining room table. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen that. I think it's a movie called Places in the Heart. But that's actually what they did. They cleaned them up on the table. That's the only table they had. Well, that's fine, but in... Autopsies in the family home. I mean, I can't believe I'm not thinking that you've got forensic science centers like we do today. But I can't believe there wasn't a more tasteful place to take them. Yeah, well, and imagine the state of those bodies. I mean, they, oh, they were in really bad shape. Detestable. Yeah, and I think it's also kind of funny that since they did that, and they also say that Lizzie speaks in a detached manner. Um, and when Flea calls Abby her mother, Lizzie says, she's not my mother, she's my stepmother. Which, neither here nor there, I'd probably do the same thing. But the proximity to the bodies and Lizzie being detached. I'm not sure if she ever reacted to the death of her father. Um, but seeing that kind of sight, I mean, okay, whatever her feelings were for her stepmother, to see her father in that state, if she, you know, if she cared about him at all, must have been just horrific and very traumatizing. Or should have been. It should have been. Uh, You might say that she reacted that way initially when she called for Bridget, but she got over her pretty quick. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, on the 6th, you know, I think that there's a funeral service for Andrew and Abby. Um, It's held at the Borden home. So, you know, Mm -hmm. in and out pretty quickly. Now... That's two days later. It's only two days, right? I'm not surprised because they weren't really embalming back in the day. No. 
um, if they were, they didn't embalm them, and decomp would have started immediately, right. especially because of the condition of their bodies. Yeah, I don't really have a problem with that two-day turnaround. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I understood that they actually buried them, and then they dug them up and retrieved their skulls so that they could take the skin off and then do further investigation looking at their skulls and the bones. That is exactly right, and that actually came up in the trial. So we've got their, the, we've got them murdered on the 4th, uh, 1892. We've got a funeral on August 6th, uh, which is two days later from their murders. On August 6th, the same day, there's an accusation made by the mayor that Lizzie is a suspect. Okay. Makes sense. She's one of the two people who was in the house at the time of the murders. She found her dad. She found her dad. And but someone else found her stepmother along Correct. with the neighbor. Correct. Um, two days later, there was a warrant issued for Lizzie's arrest, but it was not served at that time. A couple of more days later, between August 9th and 11th. Now, granted, they were killed on the 4th. So between August 9th and 11th, there was an inquest. On the 11th of August, Lizzie Borden was arrested. And it was by December that the grand jury officially indicted and charged Lizzie with homicide. I believe it, I think it was first degree murder. And she stayed in jail this entire time. She did, yeah. And back in the day, there wasn't really any kind of, there was no area to hold women. Uh, good point. I don't know if she was in what I came to understand is she had a private cell, like you might picture in a prison who's for someone who's in a long-term hold but in what would be our, our community or county jails today are just kind of more of a general population area there would have been no place like that no and i'm sure because she was a female she probably got some gentle treatment she probably had a, some privilege as well as her being from a wealthy family right um surprisingly lizzie and bridget in the same house and they didn't appear to be on the same page at all about what happened no not even close bridget's testimony is what i kind of find particularly interesting and bridget's from ireland so as i was reading it i was doing an irish accent in my head which i don't think is racist because i'm like more than 50% Irish, so I figure that's okay. That's I'm, I'm part Irish, so I'm, I'm okay with your Irish impression, whatever it is. I'm sure it's, uh, you know, it's I'm sure it's good. You look kind of Irish, too. I, wouldn't I am Irish. You. Okay, yeah. Red hair. For those of you who don't know what Brittany looks like, she's got bluish-green eyes, got kind of fair skin, she's got red hair. More red hair is not natural. Little Irish lass. What, are you blonde? I am. You don't even know what you are these days. Well, that's the weird thing. When I was <laughs> when I was a kid, I was, I was pretty blonde, like a, a light, dirty blonde. But then it was like as soon as I turned eighteen and moved to Chicago, my hair started really getting dark. Now I'd say it's like naturally, it's a uh, probably like a light brown. But no, I've been coloring it this shade for probably, I don't know, two or three years. It's kind of like a maroonish, not quite maroon. It's not that deep. It's lovely. Oh, well, thank you. You guys see Brittany in person, you'll just think she's adorable. When we come on tour. Absolutely. Alrighty, so back to this case. Back in the day, you know, I'm not sure if it was ever an option for her to be, to receive the death penalty for that. And the reason is, is Around that time period, and certainly in Massachusetts, I think there was only one one woman that's ever been put to death in Massachusetts. And the problem with the person who was put to death that they found later was that she was five months pregnant. So to never have that kind of thing happen again, they uh, have never, never put another woman to death. One in woman in state. Massachusetts after Salem. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, absolutely. Yeah, that's right, because they burn them at the stake. No, they hang them. That's a misnomer. That's a misconception. That they burn them? Yeah. No. Well, they actually drown some of them, too, because the whole the whole catch-22 is that they throw you in the water, and if you drown, you're innocent. <laughs> I think um, that's a... Maybe, but no, there's a... Oh, there's a great... There's a movie, and I can't think of what movie it is, but essentially the question... Like, someone poses the question, how many witches do they burn at Salem? I think this is in Hocus Pocus, but maybe that's because my fantasy is everything is in Hocus Pocus. Yeah. About witches. Oh, God, I need to watch Hocus Pocus this weekend. I've already watched it a couple times, guys. Um, I am so ready for Halloween, by the way. This is Halloween. This is Halloween. I was listening to the 107 best moments of Nightmare Before Christmas this morning as well, so. And I'm listening to my Halloween playlist on Spotify. Oh, man. All right. Back to the Lizzie Borden case. We are in trial mode. Um, she, again, was found um, to be to responsible fairly early on, spent the time between the beginning of the trial and the end of the trial in jail. We're not sure where she was kept, but like we said, there wasn't an area to keep women, so they, she was probably kept alone or in, in some right. quarantined area. And to clarify, I think it was actually from the time of her arrest in August until her trial in June yeah. of the following year. Yeah. That's 10 months. She was in jail a long time. Yeah. But she so, did a few very conniving things in the few days between the deaths and her arrest. And what did she do, Brittany? Well, as we were talking about before, there was very little to almost no blood splatter whatsoever. And the investigation was very poorly handled because it was never dreamt of that the Borden girls, or Bridget for that matter, could have been involved, at least at the time that it happened. Uh, well, after the inquest started, and uh, pre-grand jury, and pre-arrest, Lizzie was asked about her dress. Now, this is an inquest this is essentially police questioning at the time. It was a little more formal than that. Attorneys were questioning her, but she didn't have a, a lawyer present with her because she hadn't been officially charged. And I don't know if Miranda rights at the time were a thing or not, but essentially she was told, you don't need a lawyer because you're not under arrest. So she was answering questions just full bore all on her own. And one of the things that came up was a question about her dress. Now, one of the things that's been reference to was that immediately after the murders, one of the police officers noticed a small stain on her dress and she played it off as it was a spot of stew that had stained the dress and it was old dried stew. The dress was a kind of like a casual blue dress. It wasn't a fancy dress, but during the inquest, the what would become the prosecution, pushed a little bit further, wanted to know what happened to the clothes Lizzie was wearing and how come they were never fully investigated. Well, that night, Lizzie went home, she cut up the dress, and she burned it in the family stove. Which I find really strange. Is that the way they would normally dispose of anything and or, and or clothes? Well, I don't know if that was your normal way of disposing of things, but she was caught by the family friend who stopped her and essentially said, I don't think that's a good idea. And Emma may have even seen her as well. 
And Lizzie pushed back saying that she ruined the dress because she got paint on it. So it was of no use to her anymore. That's fine, but I'm surprised back in the day that there weren't other uses for a dress. If I mean, if you've got some limited access to things, in my old school days, if my grandmother did, couldn't use her dress anymore or any clothing, she would cut it up and make rags. Oh, that was super common. Yeah. Heck, I had art smocks made out of my grandma's old dresses and my grandpa's old plaid shirts. So yeah. There was always reuse. So what would whatever would have compelled you know Lizzie to get rid of it is is definitely strange and um, suspect to say the least. I also think it's really strange because how in the world if she did hatchet both of these people to death wasn't there more blood and i think somebody at some point had suggested that she did it when she was naked yes. i don't believe that as conservative as she was there's no way in hell she's running around that house naked no i agree and as far as that's the only thing that i could think of as to why there was no blood evidence on any of her clothes but i agree it was a very conservative family lizzie we've established we know that she was always one trying to branch out and rebel and she was also very conniving. So I wouldn't put it past her to think of things to prevent evidence from being shown on her clothing. But it does feel like a stretch for her to be running around the house naked. And especially with so many other people around the home at the time. A lot of workers, mm -hmm. it was a very populous area. A lot of people are outside during the day. She could have easily been seen. Even if she was inside the house, there were a lot of windows she could have been seen. So that does feel like a stretch to me. Well, not only that, but think about the clothing they were wearing. I mean, there was layers of clothing. Several layers, yeah. To get in and out of, I mean, from what it's I understand. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. A lot of buttons, a lot of things a lot of you know you've got definitely undergarments and you've got some overgarments and then some additional garments corsets it's a lot mm -hmm. to try to do that quickly i find that impossible especially because it would have had to happen in 15 minutes when andrew was you know walks in the house he's killed within 15 minutes and somehow she's dressed again well yeah exactly it doesn't make any sense at all and, no. and not just yeah, walking in the house falling asleep, Lizzie taking her shoe, his shoes off, propping him up, disappearing and coming back, and then reappearing. And I agree, that timeline doesn't make sense. No, not at all. So let's go back to the, uh, let's go back to the trial a little bit. Tell us a little bit about the trial. I, um, I dabbled in the trial information a bit, but I, I found the case more interesting before the trial. To me, the trial in and of itself was more about Lizzie just taking the opportunity to make people feel like that she was weak and vulnerable and unable to commit these crimes. Well, a few things that were, I think, key in the trial, particularly this speaks to her persuasion of vulnerability, whether it was just or not. She was given morphine on a regular basis by her attorney because she was so erratic, she was so emotional, she couldn't control herself. So pre-trial and then at the start of trial and at certain times during the trial, she was giving herself morphine. She was pumping it. Uh, I don't know if it was oral. I think it was actually IV. And if you, I, I don't know the doses that she was given, but IV morphine particularly, that's going to mess you up. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is she's emotional during the trial, but she wasn't really emotional when 
the no. incident actually happened. She didn't get emotional until she started. She became a suspect. Could she have been on medication when the crimes were actually committed that we don't know about? I mean, sure, it's possible. She was definitely seeing a doctor for something. And from what I understand, that doctor had come in the house, had talked to her, and then written something down, and then went over and burned whatever he wrote down. Which I'm like, why did he even write it down yeah, if he burned it? Yeah, was writing them down. But that was brought up in, um, by many people was that there was... A situation where it was thought that someone may have medicated her to calm her down, which would have explained her detached manner. Certainly. But, you know, again, maybe she was medicated the entire time, which could definitely lead a, a person who's medicated at that level may have been able to do things that we would be surprised from a normal perspective. Right. The other thing that strikes me as extremely coincidental, five days before the trial... On June 1st, 1893, another axe murder, shockingly similar to the Borden's murder, took place. Yes, and Lizzie was in jail at that time. She was in jail. The M.O. was pretty much identical. So that the defense used that to their benefit to say, it obviously isn't Lizzie. She's in jail. Someone else is out there carrying out the exact same crime. And this exact same crime was random. And did they steal anything? I mean, because that's what I think is really perplexing about the story. Unless you're an absolute psychopath, and you are breaking into houses, and it would take a lot of effort to break in this house and not be seen and not steal anything and and, and commit a crime with so much, appears to have so much rage behind it. I find that really strange and hard to understand. I do too. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here. Uh, actually, really conspiracy theorist. The person that was found guilty of that murder was a Portuguese, a Portuguese immigrant, Jose Correa de Mello. I probably just butchered that. <laughs> Sorry, Jose. He's all right. He's <laughs> fine. Uh, but the reason I find that so fascinating is because we know that Lizzie was a Sunday school teacher to the children of immigrants. So if the crime scene was very similar, the murder was very similar... Lizzie had connection to immigrants. This man was but found everybody guilty. Everybody was an immigrant back then. That's... To a certain extent, I mean, certainly it was. There was a lot of there was a lot of immigration in the country. Sure, like I mean, this, Massachusetts this... isn't that far from Ellis Island. Yeah, well, and in Ellis, the scheme of you well, know, and at the time, Ellis Island had actually just recently been opened up to essentially became becoming Ellis Island. Sure, but anyway, I just find it interesting. How it's so similar. He was found guilty. Later it was found that he could not have committed the board murders, though, because he was nowhere near Fall River. Hmm. And he just randomly decided to do this because he had his own reasons. Right. That's the... See, that's where I'm coming from. I don't understand. I mean, it just seems a little coincidental. Five days before the trial starts, this nearly identical crime happens with someone who I don't know if Lizzie actually had ties. I might be making a deep stretch connection here, but I feel like it's not outside of the realm of possibility. And Lizzie, she had deep pockets. She inherited what is the equivalent now of $8 million from her father. She could afford the best attorneys. Yeah, exactly. And she did right. afford the best attorneys of the time. And I think that was the reason that she was largely acquitted, which she was acquitted. 
they went through the trial. The defense tried to really, or the prosecutor really tried to make a solid case. It was a group of men, of course, who were on the jury, and it was decided... Women couldn't be on jury at that time. It was decided, in my opinion, fairly quickly that she wasn't guilty. And... I, I appreciate if they thought that it was, you know, they couldn't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, but I think there were other things afoot. They didn't think that she could ever have physically committed the crime, nor as a woman she could have been smart enough to commit the crime. I think they underestimated her on a variety of levels that allowed her to have some distance between the crimes. I think there's a little more to it than that also. As Lizzie is a master of manipulation, which we found with, so far, all of our subjects on the Scarlet podcast, they are so good at manipulating people. She manipulated that jury from her stoic presence after taking morphine to her fainting spell when she saw the the skulls unveiled. But I understand that would be pretty shocking. I don't know if I would faint from that, though. I definitely know I would faint She from didn't that. faint when she found her dad exactly. butchered. I mean, right. these, you, you guys have to look at these pictures. They are gruesome. And, and, and I, I, I try to put myself in her position, and I do also agree that... I feel like she did not act appropriately in the time. To- in the in the time, I'm not sure if I saw my dad laying there like that. I could have even gone in the room. I would have been running down the street, street freaking out. I like, agree. how did she keep herself composed? I do agree with that, but I still go back to everyone reacts to grief and those types of situations differently. That I don't think it's fair to judge how she reacted because I have no idea how I would react in that situation. I agree, but I think you could assume that she would, if she's later acting more concerned than in the moment when it happened. Right. Maybe she was, maybe she was in shock. She may have been. Maybe in she shock. was medicated. Maybe she was medicated the entire time. She she could have been, and you're right. I think taking it, looking at it as a whole, her reaction doesn't make sense. Looking at it as its own incident, I don't really have a problem with it. Yeah. But if you take it from looking at the big picture, sure, I can see that. But then also, the prosecutor, there were some major high-profile prosecutors on this. The former governor of Massachusetts, a, uh, one, uh, like a state chief justice, the, the district attorney who charged her admittedly was extremely hard on Lizzie. So hmm. he went at... Which I think did not help him. Exactly. That made him look like he was being... He was he was, he was targeting her. her. Yes, exactly. Agreed. Was, and sweet little Lizzie who faints at the sight of skulls and needs morphine just to get through the day because it's so overwhelming to her is now being attacked by this big bad prosecutor and the former governor and a justice from the, Supreme, the state Supreme Court. I don't think the jury looked at the evidence it took them 90 minutes to convict her and they even said well to acquit her i'm sorry i'm sorry to acquit her and they even said most of that time was just killing time because we felt like it was too soon to reach a verdict yeah well they did and they acquitted her they felt like they had proved the prosecutor has not proven the case and um there was not any way that they could fathom Lizzie being able to commit this crime. No, and I, I one more thing on the prosecutor. I think he was he was so confident this is a different time, remember, but he was so confident of his case against Lizzie and her guilt that I believe in the hour and a half that the jury was out, he was in judge's chambers. 
because there, in his mind, there was no impropriety there because it was such an easy open and shut case. There was no issue with communicating directly with the judge. He was certain. I think the judge was even certain of it. Yeah. Yep. Well, the end result, Lizzie is acquitted. She goes on with her life to inherit with Emma her family's fortune. Emma and Lizzie do the right thing by Abby's family, and I think they either split the inheritance or they take care of them in a way they that they felt sufficient. Them. Right. Lizzie and Emma then go on to buy a home in the area that they always wanted. They bought a home on the hill. On the hill. And they live there together for many, 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 many years. They lived lavishly. They had parties. Love affairs. Yes, with men and women. Lizzie specifically, I don't know about Emma. Emma, to me, always came across as the classic old spinster as she was known around town. She wasn't one that went out to party. Lizzie always wanted that life but never had it. But once her parents were gone, she took advantage of it. From what I understand, the reason Emma and Lizzie actually did not continue to live together and Emma moved out was because Emma did not appreciate uh, Lizzie's lifestyle. Lizzie was definitely living high on the hog, per se. She had um, a very nice home. She named that home, um, which I think is super cute to name your house. Was it Maplethorpe? Something like that. It was but something like li- that. Li- Liz- and she changed her name from Lizzie to Lizbeth. Liz- so, yes. So Lizbeth Andrew. Borden of Maplethorpe. It's a <laughs> very grand. But she, she tried to drop the Borden. She kept that legally, but she tried to drop the Borden so that way she wouldn't be known. Because at this point, Lizzie Borden was the OJ of the 1890s. She was the Lindbergh baby, but in reverse. Everyone knew Lizzie Borden. She couldn't go anywhere. So by dropping Borden, she was trying to hide herself. So So what are your thoughts about this case? What do you... I mean, we know there were a couple of suspects in the beginning that were ruled out pretty quickly. Um, We know that the two people who were definitely in the house at the time of the murders, admittedly, was Bridget and Lizzie. We know that Emma was not home, but she came home later. I think it's, I, th- I, I still think it's Lizzie. I mean, there are there are a lot of people you can point to. You can point to Bridget. You can point to Lizzie's uncle. You can point to possibly someone who had a bank loan go bad. But as we were talking about, I just don't see how anyone could have that much rage built up and see the opportunity over the course of two hours. If they were two quick murders back to back and maybe not at the level of violence that they were, I could see an argument for someone else. But it was someone who needed access, regular ability to get in and out. The only other person at the time would be Bridget. I just don't feel like it was her. I go back and forth. Uh, let me just correct myself. It wasn't Maplethorpe that the it was the actual actual name of Lizzie's home was Maplecroft Mansion, which I think it sounds a little more elegant. Um, I agree with you. I you've got Bridget who if Bridget did it by herself, Lizzie would have probably rolled over and on her. What would have would have essentially incriminated her if it would have been Lizzie and not. I think that. 
Bridget would have probably had more to say about Lizzie unless there was some conversation about what maybe they got their story straight. They just what they didn't do was incriminate each other. It's possible they had a romantic relationship. Lizzie or Emma terminated Bridget shortly afterwards and told her you're no longer needed. You can go back to Ireland. She of course moved west to Montana instead. I think Bridget was pretty devastated by this. The only other person I could potentially see being is Emma because her whereabouts is very spotty. But I don't think she has it in her. Well, I do. I did find in, in some documentation that they actually sent Emma a telegram wherever she was. They could get to her via telegram. Because they sent her a telegram and they told her that her parents had been killed. That tells me that they knew where she was and it must have been verified because she wouldn't have been able to get a telegram without it, which means that she wasn't there. So if Lizzie and Emma were working together, Emma was sent away so that she wouldn't be incriminated. Right. Okay. That's fair. The other suspects, I, I go back to access. I, there were only two people in the house. Andrew couldn't even get in the house. Bridget (laughs) had to let him in. So that place was on lockdown. If you couldn't, if no one could, else could get into the house and Lizzie and Bridget were the only ones in the house, it appears to me that it could only be one of them or it could have been both of them it working could, together. It could have been both of them. Yeah, I agree. Something I just found just before we recorded, Lizzie and Emma died within, I think it was nine days of each other. Yes. In 1927, though they had been separated Bridget lived a longer life, but her sister has since reported that on her deathbed, Bridget confided in her that Lizzie actually did it. Confided in who? Bridget's sister. Oh, and Bridget's sister. I thought you meant Emma. No. So Bridget told Bridget's sister, Bridget told her own sister that Lizzie did it. That's correct. I mean, I, I... I think that Lizzie did it, too. I think she did, too. And I could see why Emma wouldn't flip on Lizzie. She was a young immigrant in the United States. I can't speak to what things were like in the 1890s. But she had only been here nine years. She may not have been a citizen. So it, there may have been a pact between them also. Well, I I would say I'm 85% sure that if Lizzie did it, Emma knew. I, that's what I'm kind of thinking. That's near also. impossible to think that that wasn't the case. And that's kind of what I'm thinking is that Lizzie would do it or at least work with Emma, but Lizzie would take the fall. Emma would essentially be her primary witness in her defense and Emma would not face it because she would face deportation. I mean, I do think that Bridget might've benefited from that situation just to help cure Lizzie's acquittal. Mm-hmm. Bridget on her deathbed told her sister that. Yes. How long after was Bridget was Lizzie and Emma already dead when they she were said that? Dead. So no harm, no foul for Bridget exactly. to release that information. Yes. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I go back to this not being random because if it was random and someone wanted to kill Andrew, they wouldn't have gone to the trouble and bother even bothered to kill Abby. It would have, she was upstairs. They would have had to gone up the stairs to find her and then kill her for what? And it would have been Nothing. pretty, it, this wasn't random. It would have been pretty easy to kill Andrew because 
he liked to go around town by himself. He didn't want to be with Abby. He wanted to conduct his own business and live his own life. They had plenty of opportunity. He wasn't shy about being seen in public. Yeah. He wasn't liked in public. He didn't want to mingle or socialize, but he wasn't shy about being out there. Yeah. There were a lot of ways to kill him besides hatcheting him to death. Right. Which would have taken a lot of strength. Um, and precision, you know, from whoever. And to, it, it's the timing. The timing is the is an interesting element for me as well. That really shows that it was a it was a crime of opportunity, but of serious planning as well. Because you would John Morse was in the house, right? I also do not think that it was an act of passion from Lizzie, meaning that one day she woke up and looked around and said, "Oh, I've got an opportunity here. I'm going to do this." This was thought out. She must have known that her dad was leaving or would have gone. She must have known what her mother would have been doing or around that time. And she must have found out, figured out where she was. She had to have figured out what she was going to kill them with. That's not random because you've got to have that weapon, mm -hmm. whatever it is. Just all of that coming together as it did. And her father being killed in a 15-minute window as brutally as he was you know, killed. I mean, 11, 11 hatchet wax, one per every couple seconds. That's a lot in 15 minutes from, from being of energy. He was awake at 11 right. and 15 minutes later, he was dead after 15 and, hatchet wax. Well, and that's 15 minutes later. That's when the doctor got there. So he was even dead before that. Yeah. It was maybe 10 or 12 minutes. It was no time at all. It's a very short period of Extremely time. Extremely short. I mean, her life definitely turned around after she killed her parents and she inherited their money. She um, had a comfortable life. She had a good life. She had dogs. She there are lots of actual there are lots of pictures of um, Lizzie Borden after the crime and after she was acquitted. Very comfortable on her very nice porch at Maplecroft, enjoying her life. I think that what was most interesting that I read about that is she. I thought, and strange, she stayed in the area, mm -hmm. which I would have been out of there with my big fat money. Oh, yeah. Um, because she was ridiculed. She was ostracized. People did not like her. And she was forever more known as, even if she was found, uh, you know, not guilty, um, she was still ostracized by and, and judged by her peers. Well, uh, I mean, that full crime became famous instantly. It wasn't, it wasn't 20, 30, it wasn't even five years down the line when someone got a hold of the story and came up with it. It was something that kids got a hold of right away and just turned it on. Became almost a Mother Goose-like rhyme that was, made Lizzie famous. So or infamous, or I don't think infamous. she certainly wasn't liked. And what's in, I think that there were a lot of reasons for that. I think, again, I think that there was a lot of um, misunderstanding about the capabilities of women and, and how, you know, awful and horrible they can be. We will in the future have a couple of episodes where we'll cover some other female criminals from history and we will talk about the severity of their crimes and how they were underestimated and how that actually allowed them to continue for years and years and years, whereas if this would have been a man, that the crimes would have stopped much earlier. Some of those are the most fascinating because they would never be suspected. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Thanks, 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 Scarlettos. We and really appreciate you guys listening to our podcast. Thank you for tuning in to Lizzie Borden's 40 Wax. A couple shout-outs before we go. 
Definitely give a big shout out to John McGrew for helping us with our main title song. We really appreciate it. It's fantastic in our opinion. And it really got the spirit of what we were trying to achieve. Uh, also, Juan Mazaleon for creating our logo for us. We really appreciate that as well. We think you uh, really visually uh, understood what we were trying to get to. Um, and for you Scarlet Podcast fans out there, you know, we just want to clarify for the future, we will be calling you Scarlettos because, you know, our fan base is important to us. We appreciate that you guys are taking the time to listen to us. We appreciate your comments. So please reach out to us at our Gmail address at Scarlet True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to give us a follow on Twitter at Scarlet Podcast. We will uh, probably send out a few images of the Borden house, send out some pictures of the crime scene photos, warning they are a little gruesome, but I do find them fascinating. Plus, you'll be able to find more information about the artists and other people that support us and get more information about future episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback and would like to get more to know more about you as well. The other shout out I want to give uh, is a resource that I looked to and found a lot of great information um, about Lizzie Andrew Borden and that was at the Lizzie Andrew Borden Virtual Museum and Library. Obviously there are a lot of people interested in this information and I think they did a really great job of providing a lot of um, material and a lot of suggestions about what their thoughts are and I do th- think it's really fascinating and if you can get to Massachusetts and take a tour of this house because it is supposed to be haunted but just to give yourself some context around this story and to see where it happened and to, to stand in that room and to understand it it certainly helped me as I looked at the pictures of the house understand what it must have been like to be there and um, that kind of context is I think is really important that B&B is going on my bucket list I know. Well, you could do that, and you could also go to Salem and do those tours as well. so much you can do. All righty. Thanks a lot. Have a good one, guys. Happy Halloween.